Well, welcome everyone to lesson five of our series, A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. This is a series we've been going through uh, for several weeks now um, based on a book written by Dr. Stephen Nichols. Let us start in prayer. Heavenly Father, give us this time that we would draw closer to you through the truth delivered in the message of your gospel. Draw us into a place of security in your promises, in the revealing and fulfillment of your redemptive plan, and in the person and work of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned just a moment ago, today we find ourselves in Lesson 5, which is Confidence in the Gospel. This is the fifth lesson of a series we've been going through. So far we've gone through a time for confidence, confidence in God, confidence in the Bible, confidence in Christ. Today we're doing confidence in the Gospel, and then next week, January 19th, will be wrapping up with a confidence in hope. We'll start today, this lesson, with a little reminder of where we stand in our current culture. George Yancey teaches sociology at the University of North Texas. He's a Christian, and he has recently turned his attention to a term that he coined. He studies the changing trends and attitudes of the American population towards Christians, and specifically theologically conservative Christians. These are Christians who regularly attend church, who affirm the Bible's teaching, who affirm a set of theologically conservative beliefs. His major research question is this, what do Americans think of these theologically conservative Christians? The answer he found, the answers he found have led him to coin the term Christianophobia. He has report, reported on his studies in a number of his books. He titled, titled one of them, So Many Christians, So Few Lions a line he actually received from a survey respondent. It's an obvious reference to the early centuries of Christianity. As one of the forms of persecution, Christians would be thrown to the lions in the stadium. So many Christians, so few lions. When we looked at placing our confidence in God's word in chapter three of this series, we considered the challenges coming from the sciences and the social sciences to scripture. We saw that many people were finding the Bible to be outmoded, outdated, unhelpful, and even harmful. The views expressed in these quotes share that perspective. Let's read a few of them. The members are generally superstitious. 
and share the same attitudes that led to the religious atrocities of medieval Europe. Another is, my brother, a highly intelligent but troubled young man, abandoned all reason and embraced conservative thinking. It is a tremendously depressing waste of his potential. Another, it is to the disgrace of humanity that such ignorance, superstition, and intolerance still persist in the modern age. It is a shame that in an age of enlightenment and scientific advancement, pre-medieval superstition is still so evident. And the last, advanced beyond Santa and the Easter Bunny, but still at a juvenile intellectual stage. The next Sunday School series that we'll be going into after this one will be in presuppositional apologetics. And we'll be learning some tools to help address some of the perspectives identified here. But not only do these views tell us something about what the world that we live in, or something about the world we live in, they also raise a significant question. How do we speak the gospel to this kind of person? Here's a, yet another question. Is this kind of a person beyond the pale of the gospel? Can the gospel still break through to that person who thinks that Christians are a menace and should be thrown to the lions? When we enter a season of conflict, do we only see battle lines drawn? Or do we see our task as proclaiming the gospel and realizing that even in the face of opposition and hostility, we still have an obligation to preach the gospel to even to our enemies? Dr. Nichols raises these questions because he thinks they help us to get to a truly significant question. And that question is, do we believe in the power of the gospel? We see an example of the power of the gospel in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians, we find ourselves dealing with a biblical author who also happened to be in jail. Paul was in Rome and enduring the first of his two Roman imprisonments. He was released shortly after he wrote Philippians. Then he was re-arrested. Then, as church tradition informs, he was martyred, as was Peter, sometime in AD 66 or 67. Both imprisonments occurred during the reign of Nero. You would be hard-pressed to find or to identify a ruler more sinister or more evil than Nero. We also need to notice the power of the gospel in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, this is a quote, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard 
and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. If you were looking for a symbol of Roman power, you could do no better than the Praetorian Guard. These were the elite forces of the Roman army, the trained of the trained. The qualifications to become a Praetorian Guard were high. Consider the sheer physical, physicality and strength, the power and skill one had to have to possess to wear this uniform. Praetorian guards would be at the very peak of physical condition. This force was not merely a symbol of Roman power. In the first century AD, the Praetorian guard represented the reality of Roman power. These were the men who Paul, these were the men who were Paul's guards and the gospel made it into their ranks. This is a map of the, actually the spread of Christianity within the Roman Empire. And uh, the dark blue is at 300 AD, and uh, 300 to 600 is the green color, um, which is, the, the whole of the Roman Empire. Uh, and then there's little, little dots where it says centers of Christian diffusion. And these, these are the locations that we're talking about here where the Praetorian Guard would have been sent to. Praetorian Guards were routinely shipped around the Roman Empire, serving tours in various places, and then getting reassigned to Rome. Paul appreciated this practice, as it meant he would regularly be assigned new guards. His first imprisonment, from what we can construct, did not last long, but thanks to the rotation of his guard, he was able to spread the gospel in what was easily one of the unlikeliest places in the Roman Empire. During the decades of the writing of the New Testament, and during the centuries of persecution experienced by the early church, the Praetorian Guard would arrest and guard Christians. Now, in Rome, in AD 62, Paul was evangelizing them. Paul informs us that his imprisonment has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. The guards were talking about Paul. They would be guarding him, and then they would get reassigned. On their new assignment, they told their colleagues about their very peculiar prisoner. The word spread, and the gospel spread. Let us not forget the cultural moment here as well. They were boldly speaking the gospel in the city of Rome, Nero's Rome. In Nero's day, the Grand Circus Maximus grew to its greatest capacity, which was 250,000 spectators. 
To this day, it is the largest sporting arena ever. The main event in the circus was the chariot race. Chariots pulled by four to 12 horses raced for honor and large cash prizes. The track was purposely constructed with sharp turns to promote accidents for the bloodthirsty crowd. Carnage involving horses and charioteers was the norm. Yet, in the midst of it all, Paul boldly preached the gospel, and the gospel flourished. In what may very well be the theme of the verses for the epistle to the Romans, Paul declares, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. This is from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The gospel is the power of God. It will succeed against all odds and against all opposition. Rome had two designations for the religions it encountered across its spreading empire. One of those designations was religio licita, which means legal religion. The other was superstitio illicita, which means illegal superstition. The word superstition reveals how contemptuous Rome found these practices to be. As Rome overtook other peoples, for the most part, those people groups were polytheists. This represented no problems to Rome. This simply meant that more gods could be added to the Roman pantheon. Most of the religions that came into the Roman Empire were dubbed religio licita. They had the stamp of approval from Rome and could be practiced freely. Judaism was granted religio licita status primarily because Jews didn't tend to proselytize a great deal. But from its beginnings, Christianity was designated superstitio illicita. As a consequence, Christians were literally enemies of the state, marginalized, ostracized, and persecuted. They could be killed with impunity. In the middle of July, AD 64, Nero, or Rome burned. Nero likely caused the fire. He had ambitious plans to rebuild Rome, but there were current buildings in his way. The belief of historians is that, Rome, is that Nero's underlings set the fire to help speed along his revitalization plans. The fire, however, spread out of control. It burned for a week and may have consumed as much as 70% of the city. Fingers started pointing at Nero. The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that to shift the blame off of himself, Nero fixed the blame on Christians. 
an intense season of persecution ensued. Tacitus further informs us that Nero used Christians as living torches to illuminate his gardens at night so he could be entertained by chariot races. The persecution he unleashed lasted until the end of his reign in AD 68. Sometime between AD 64 and 68, Nero handed down the order for Paul to be arrested, re-arrested, and for Peter to be arrested. Both were executed before Nero's death. This is the cultural backdrop for the growth of the church and for the New Testament writings. Paul knew that he had to put his confidence in the gospel because nothing else can turn the human heart and nothing else solves the human dilemma. People think the human dilemma is many things. Some say that it's poverty or the unjust distribution of resources and wealth. Some say it's war and our penchant for war. Some think, some simply think that the human dilemma is internal and psychological. As R.C. Sproul has often said, the human dilemma is this. God is holy and we are not. God is righteous and we are not. Our problem is not a lack of abundance of wealth or resources. Our problem is not that we have, that we are a few degrees short of finding utopia. Our problem is the wrath of a holy God. No amount of righteousness can solve that dilemma. Paul testifies to only one solution, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. When we think of Luther's main doctrine, we think of justification by faith alone. That doctrine hinges upon one word. In fact, the entire Reformation and the protest of the reformers launched against the Roman Catholic Church could very well be summed up in this one word. That word is imputation. The doctrine of imputation teaches us that our sin, which cuts us off and alienates us from a holy God, gets imputed to Christ. Christ paid the penalty for our sin and so our sins are, are forgiven. The doctrine of imputation also teaches that Christ's righteousness gets imputed to us. If Christ's work only accomplished the forgiveness of sins, we would be right back where we were in the garden before Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's now spend some time seeking to build our confidence in the gospel.
by considering what Protestants have historically confessed regarding the doctrine of justification. This is taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, paragraph 1. This is the nature of our justification. Justification was the material cause, for, in Aristotelian terms, of the Protestant Reformation. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. Oh, sorry. Or any other evangelical obedience as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience of and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Let's spend a few, minute, a few minutes discussing this. And I'd like to ask the question, what, what can we say about the nature of this justification then? Is justification a single act or is it a process? Single act? Good. Here we, so, uh, uh, let's see. And does God change our nature to make us righteous? Um, yes, he is conforming us to the image of his son through sanctification. But um, in, for justification, though, are we made, are, are we declared as just before God because of something done in us? What's that? An, an alien righteousness. So this paragraph makes the point of saying, not by infusing righteousness into them, right? That would be the, the Catholic doctrine of justification. By whose righteousness then are we justified? <laughs> yes, by Christ's imputed righteousness. And we use the word imputed, which means accredited righteousness. And are we declared righteous only because our sins have been atoned for? Think back to what, what we quoted from Luther. Only for the atonement. No. No. Okay, then what else? Yes. So, so there's a two-sided. There's a passive, pass, Christ's passive obedience and active obedience. So, so not only is um, are our sins, not only does he take our sin and, and pay the penalty for them, but he also gives us his righteousness. And because of that, we are declared to be righteous. I thought that was a 
Mm-hmm. Right. Right. There was there was a there was a promised inheritance that was uh, given to Adam that he never get, got hold of. Right, and that's a promise that is given to those who are in Christ. Um, let's see here. What do you think is meant by the term evangelical obedience in this paragraph, where it says that? Um, that we're not declared righteousness by the imputating of faith itself, the act of believing, or even any other evangelical obedience. This is one that really trips us up in the, for Protestants. Right, so evangelical obedience is um, like what God has done in us. So even we are, we are not declared just because of the good works that we do as Christians. We are declared just by what Christ has done, right? So think back to the uh, parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, where the Pharisee um, says that, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else, right? But only one of those left justified. It wasn't the Pharisee. Um, So historically, what we've defined justification as is uh, it's formally defined as an, an act of God's free grace which is a one-time event, like we discussed earlier, where, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, the next paragraph says which is about the instrument of our justification. We touched on this a little bit earlier in the series we were going through when we talked about the uh, instrument of our justification, faith being the instrument. And, and there were a, a bit of follow-up questions that, uh, that I had uh, with regard to that di- uh, verbiage. So let's read through this again. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of our justification. Yet, is it not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love? So, here's a good question. Is is the definition of faith that we have here active or passive? Is our faith active or passive? We receive. So, so the verbs used here are we receive and rest. Active or passive? We practice it. We live it out. It's not dead. So theologians tend to differ on their perspective on this this question. Um, Calvin calls faith uh, the hands by which we reach out to God. Uh, Here it's called the alone instrument of our justification. So let's talk about then uh, what we don't want to affirm then. What What are the dangers of calling our faith passive? Yeah, if... If our faith is passive, then we're not 
not part of it. It's something that's done to us without our, our participation, right? Um, and, and conversely, what's, what is the danger of saying that it's active? Right. So it becomes a work of, of ours and not something that Christ is doing in us. Um, so is it good news? Let's get back to the topic of our, our confidence in the gospel. Is it good news that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And, and how does that affect our confidence in the power of the gospel? Right? What, what about in, in evangelism? So our participation is the means by which God has chosen to spread, hit, spread the message of the gospel, but that doesn't mean that... that uh, um, the power of the gospel comes from us, though. Um, so, or the result, right? So, so let's get back to the instrument word here. What is meant here that faith is an instrument? Okay. Cause means. It's a gift. It's the means by which we take hold of uh, our justification, right? Um, so, is it good news then that faith is only an instrument? Or let me ask a different ask it a different way. How is it different than saying that our faith is the grounds of our justification? Is it good then that it's only an instrument? It's the only thing, but it's also only an instrument, as opposed to the grounds. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to make a distinction there. It's a means, it's a means but it's not. Um, I guess the distinction here is that um, it's a tool at our disposal, but our, our justification is not based on um, a faith, a belief. It's um, um, something that comes from us. Uh, our, our salvation is the object of that thing. Right. So it's the object. So the, the, the grounds of our justification is, is the person and work of Christ, right? And faith then is only the means by which we grab hold of that. Right. It's the means. Means not the cause, right? And that's and that gives us confidence, right? Because because we see if the cause is Christ and His work, um, then we can have confidence in that rather than having confidence in ourselves. It's, it's also yeah, and it's also the will accomplished. Right. So we so for us personally, it gives us confidence because we know that our, that salvation is not of ourselves. You know, it's of God. And for evangelism, it also gives us confidence. Really, you know, I, I think that God, God knows this. Mm-hmm. He says, God knows that we're kept us. Right. And so he's done all this. So faith, faith looks not to ourselves. 
uh, but it looks to Christ alone for our salvation. Um, now the last one is the, the term saving graces up there. What are these saving graces that always accompany uh, saving faith? Just the golden, golden chain? I think, I think this paragraph is looking toward how, how that then manifests itself, itself in our lives, though. Um, this is a uh, faith is not, uh, faith without works is dead type of thing. So, so how, where, I think where, where they were going with this is that uh, saving graces are, are what might otherwise be called in Scripture as fruit of the Spirit, you know. Right, right. So it's, Part of sanctification, it's, it's being conformed to the image of Christ. Saving graces. Right. Let's see. Paragraph three, we have, this is the scope of our justification. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are just, just that are thus justified, and did not make a proper real, or and did make a proper real and full satisfaction to his father's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. So this is also connected to the gospel message. What is this debt that we owe to God? Righteousness? Our sin? Our sin? Right, so this is, this is connecting us back to what Christ did, right? So, so one, we owe a debt of the penalty that we, pay, that we must pay for our sin, right? And two, we owe the debt of the perfect, personal perfect and perpetual obedience. That's the righteousness of Christ. So why is it good news then that Christ paid this debt for us? <laughs> Maybe an easy question. <laughs> so our inability. We we have no ability on either on either side of that. We 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 cannot pay the penalty uh that Christ paid and we cannot uh um live the life that Christ lived either. And uh why why then, this may be an easy one too, why then uh, did God the Father give his son? What's that? His, his own glory. We see that up here, yes? Uh, John 3.16 says that because he so loved the world, he gave his son. Mm-hmm. No. So there's a covenant in here as well. It's a fulfillment of promises made. 
And then the last paragraph we're going to look at is the timing of our justification. God did, from all eternity, decree to justify the elect. And Christ did, in the fullness of time, die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. So what is God's decree, this decree language that's in the first lineup? Redemptive covenant? Uh, that's, so the covenant of redemption, and, and I'll, I'll connect these two things, is God's eternal plan from, you know, from, from eternity past you know, to uh, reconcile a, a people to himself, right? Intra-Trinitarian covenant, that's the covenant of redemption. And so what we see here in the word decree, which connects to that, is God's eternal purpose, right? That, that he has had a plan from eternity past that is accomplished by his own sovereign will. Um, and why is this decree from all eternity? Why, why do we say that, that God had a plan from, from eternity past? Intertrinitarian, so it's it's outside of time. Why is it necessary, though? That's a good point, right? So God is not. We don't have a God who changes. We don't have a God who reacts. You know, there's no plan B. It wasn't like uh, our redemption is uh, God uh, saying, "Whoops, I made a mistake, and now I'm going to correct the mistake." Right? There was a plan in everything that comes to pass. And what do you think is meant by this biblical phrase, fullness of time, in that Christ did in the fullness of time die? This is, this is language that uh, comes from Galatians chapter 4. What do you think fullness means? All time? The, the apex of time? Okay. Okay. So the, the plan, like a planned time? The planned time or the purpose time? Or you might say like the, the, the perfect time? You know, the, yeah. So uh, the, the term on the second line there it says, and rise again. So this, the Westminster Confession of Faith uses this rise again language, but the London Baptist Confession of Faith doesn't. It, it takes this part out right here uh, on the second line. Um, but why do you think this confession connects our justification to Christ? What did, what did Paul say? Right. So, um, right, so then our, our, our faith would be in vain that... If, if Christ did not rise. It, it testifies to who Christ is, right? The, the proof that the work was accomplished? 
That's, that's a very good point. That's where, that's where I would go with this as well, that, that death had no claim on Jesus. So what does that say about those who are found to be in him? His providence? His Right, so there was purpose behind it, right? It was, you know. From a worldly perspective, we could look at that fullness of time also and say, well, a a large number of things came together at that particular time that made this possible, right? And some of that we've been looking at uh, in looking at the history of how the gospel spread. Those things in history couldn't have happened at some other time, right? Right, right. Um, so, what is a, what is meant here? Uh, what is meant by apply Christ to us? So that's uh, the last the last line there, that the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. What is applying Christ? Imputation? Well, that is actually conversion. Conversion? Okay. A lot of these things happen coincidentally. He fulfilled the prophecy of the Holy Spirit until Christianity. So you're going for like a a sanctification idea? Oh, no, you're you're saying... Because all believers come to the Lord at different times. Right, right. Okay. Right. So, and when he's when he's applied to us, that's um, at, that's the the mean the mechanism by which we are united to him. Union with Christ. Yes. So we spent a lot of time in past lessons talking about that as well, uh, or or the Holy Spirit working faith in us. So, so there's confidence here in knowing that all that God declares does come to pass. And even, some, even though some things you know, in our lifetime haven't, complete, haven't been completely worked out, there's confidence in knowing that God says something, it will happen. Let's see here. Mm-hmm. Fullness of time? Yeah. Well, right, so there's, there was a particular time when Christ died in history, and there's a particular time when we are saved in history as well. It's an ordained time, yes. Yep. So this is, now let's, as we've put together some of these building blocks now, um, what justification is, let's see, uh, the timing of our justification, the scope of our justification, the instrument of our justification, and the nature of our justification. Let's see if we can start to see some of this in the gospel as it's presented in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So Paul, Paul defines the gospel for his readers in, in this section of Ephesians. This densely packed text, which is one long and glorious sentence in the Greek, offers a number of encouraging and comforting ideas, 
all of which serve to bolster our confidence in the gospel and in the God of the gospel. So let me just read this real quick. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Three things stand out in this text. First, the gospel and God's plan of redemption unite all things and restore all things. All the broken pieces, all the disjointed fragments are restored and united. The gospel brings restoration and wholeness to the fractured heap. Second, the gospel is our inheritance. We enjoy so many things now, forgiveness of sins, freedom from in Christ, fellowship with the triune God, fellowship with one another, purpose, meaning, and direction in life, the assurance of the Holy Spirit. We enjoy so many things now, but these are but a bit of a down payment for the life to come and of the full inheritance that awaits God's children. Not only is the gospel our inheritance, but we are sealed. There is absolute certainty here. We are guaranteed delivery. The Holy Spirit is our seal. Third, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 teaches us that the gospel is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. So this lesson was confidence in the gospel. The next lesson will be the last in our series, which is confidence in hope, which chance will be tying all of these pieces together.
I guess I'd like to leave you with a little bit of a quote here from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is quoted as saying, we see the stability of God's mercy and faithfulness to his people, how he never forsakes his inheritance and remembers his covenant to them through all generations. I leave you with this quote from Jonathan Edwards in the hopes that you would find the same confidence that he has in the gospel. You guys have any lingering questions or discussion? Thank you. All right, well then we'll, we'll break and be prepared next week for confidence and hope. <laughs>